The Social Relapse, a podcast where we discuss some of the ways in which social media is changing how we think, talk, and see ourselves. This is episode eight, part two of episode seven, with the same title, Palestine in the Digital Age. Our previous episode discussed amplifying Palestinian voices and the role of social media censorship. We continue hearing from Laif and Salam, two Palestinian Londoners, as we discuss how mainstream media is no longer the only medium in town, and how action for the liberation of Palestine must go further than hashtag activism. So we're going to talk about the challenge to mainstream media and traditional narratives, and it's something we've already picked up on previously about how specific broadcasters will frame it in a certain way. And something else that we saw actually uh, recently was when they decided to share the story. So if you tune into perhaps BBC News, you might see the first bit is when you've got rocket attacks. Whereas if you're watching Al Jazeera, you know that it started when the Al-Aqsa Mosque was being stormed. But if you watch a different media source, you know that it started with Sheikh Jarrah and occupation force trying to kick a family out who had been living there for some time. And if you probably read, you'll know it started way back when, you know, even before World War One. So there's a deep history to this conflict. But at the same time, it's very recent because people are going through it today. And it's, it's very much kind of the marriage of opposites. It's complicated, but it's also not. There's so much to it. I want to touch back on the media side of it and, and how it feels watching something that directly affects you being told in so many different ways. And Blythe, I want to start with you. You mentioned previously that this is the way propaganda works and to confuse the message. But how does it feel seeing a story of you, about you, related to you, being told in so many different ways? That's a very difficult question. <laughs> uh, it probably makes me feel very different things depending on the time. It's quite exhausting sometimes being Palestinian because, and this has been said by many people, and I'm, I'm lucky and I'm privileged in sounding like this, in living in London and being a professional and a lot of the time not having to justify my existence. But in any space in which I'm visibly Palestinian, I do have to justify my existence. And every Palestinian has to justify their existence. Every Palestinian has gone through that and it's exhausting. But I don't think any of us would change it as well, right? Mm -hmm. Despite how exhausting it is. And I think it's because we have, and, and this is, I think, being reported on more and more, and I think this is being, this is more and more visible, is that there is that spirit of saying no to injustice, even in the face of the, the worst machinery of war that the world can create, and that being done over and over again. And you feel kind of proud of that heritage. And, and in addition to feeling that pride and, and knowing that history and living that history and struggling you know, in your university, in your workplace and getting shut down, getting silenced and, and all of that, you, you do it because you believe that it's the right thing to do, but you also do it because you, you know that one day we will overcome and you know that the narrative will shift one day and you know that we're on the side of justice. And so you don't give up and you carry on because there is that hope. And through all the pain, through all the grief, through everything that's been going on over the last few weeks, there's more hope than there's ever been before, I think. Certainly for our generation. You know, we've had the Oslo Accords catastrophe, the Second Intifada catastrophe, the War on Terror catastrophe. Like, it's just been getting worse for Palestinians over the last, over a millennial's lifetime, shall we say. And it got more brutal and just seeing the brutality of the Israeli occupation which started kind of for us, as we were starting to form memories and personalities, 
in the Second Intifada, watching tanks roll into our towns, thinking that was possibly the worst thing that could happen, and then seeing what happened in Gaza a few years later, and then a few years after that, and then a few years after that, and seeing that happen over and over again. So through all of that pain, all of that grief, there is more hope than there's ever been within our lifetimes, possibly even longer, by seeing essentially the, the, the founding fathers of Israel's vision getting destroyed because they said the old will die and the young will forget. And not only did the young not forget, their grandchildren didn't forget. You know, if we can break the basis on which they expelled 750,000 Palestinians in 1948 and, uh, and killed tens of thousands and imprisoned so many people over the years, if we can break that, like one of the founding principles of why they thought it was okay to do this, then we can bring justice. And it feels more real than it's ever felt before. Yeah, I think back to your question about how it makes you feel to see the narrative that you are part of essentially being told at different points and and through different mainstream media and sort of social media. It's very frustrating. It's very mentally taxing, actually, to see an inaccurate narrative being shared and also infuriating, actually, when I sit with others who are maybe not as well informed or don't have the connection that I do and saying, oh, no, what, you know, how terrible or whatever. And I'm like, this has been terrible for a very, very long time. This is a very small snippet that you're exposed to. And also just to hear, you know, little seeps of information, people saying, oh, yeah, but actually, and then coming with accounts argument which is just you know I don't want to hear it but it's really exhausting and it's very tiring to see that and like you said to jump onto BBC and then you know see oh rockets fired from Hamas and I'm like everything that you're sharing has zero context like you can start the story anywhere and one person is the bad guy and one person is the good guy so it's very frustrating to see that and it's it's difficult to compose myself emotionally actually because I sit there and I watch the news and I just think I can't imagine how many other people are sitting in their living room absorbing this information and it's controlling what they are thinking and I think especially on social media a post an infographic whatever you want to call it can go viral very quickly if that doesn't have accurate information and thousands of people have now absorbed that actually you are now arguing this is inaccurate this is wrong and it's it's very tiring I think you know, I've been mentally exhausted for a long time, but actually more so in the last three weeks, because the story that or the narratives or, you know, the truth that I want to be told is not being told on a, on a scale that everyone needs to see. I need to see it everywhere, not snippets of this without context. And I think what's even more frustrating, I find, is that the trying to equalize the sides and trying to say oh you know one is this and one is that and they're both as bad as each other it's really difficult to understand how someone else can comprehend that as equal sides like you know you can say Israel has a right to defend itself debatable whatever but actually the disproportionate force in which it's used and actually they have a catalog of information telling you who lives there what their name is their date of birth their occupation who their grandfather was you know all of this information to then come and say oh you know 30 palestinians died how did they suddenly die like they they were killed and it was it was targeted you can't say oh you know the israeli government and the idf and and everyone there is you know they're targeting terrorist organizations they're targeting Hamas 
that's actually you know where they are really um it's it's completely unjustified so to see the story told in so many ways and so many inaccurate ways is is really emotionally distressing as a Palestinian definitely you've both mentioned really key parts of life you mentioned how the old will die and the young will forget except this time the young haven't and Salam you mentioned previously how anything you put on social media is kind of like a stain and I think in some way you can marry both of those statements together and say the fact that social media has breathed life and permanence into these videos means that it can't be erased but you can't deny the reality of what's happening any more than you in decades times as you can now it's very clear to see what exactly is happening regardless of the way it's being framed by a broadcaster coming back to the idea of how the story is being told in different ways and again how the story is almost as old as time if we think about the traditional narrative of this conflict in quotation marks it's often been told from the perspective of these developed nations that often speak for Palestine without actually interviewing Palestine like you mentioned previously the idea of organizing within Palestine and having that one voice one movement and we know that politically that's quite complex there hasn't always been someone who's very representative I know there are also tensions as to whether Palestinians support the Palestinian Authority like whether they feel that is something that speaks for them or not but as people within the diaspora when it comes to reframing this narrative and kind of coming up with the next steps how do we go about doing that in terms of creating that change you mentioned how social media is great but it has to have that final event right for some reason I keep thinking of that moment when they knock down the Berlin Wall like that could be what we see in Palestine that total liberation recognition and punishment of actions that have been done against and oppressed people for decades but when it comes to how we get to that place who do you think will bring about it because we often see oppressed people looking to other people to make that change for them but it's not necessarily in their interest to do so so where do you see this positive change coming from i think everyone who is actively using social media to share the information also needs to actively speak about that in their institutions in their universities in their places of work um, and not be afraid to you know share the same voice that you have online is the same voice that you need to have in person and i think that's going to be instrumental in creating a dialogue in these spaces where actually you can resonate with someone who maybe doesn't know that much but is now feeling you know distraught by the accurate information that you're sharing with them and now you can lobby within your institutions to demand change to create some sort of movement within your organization i think we saw that quite strongly during the blm movement where actually a lot of institutions a lot of companies um, a lot of universities are now oh we stand for you know inequality and we support the black minority students and black minority workers and now we have diversity inclusion this that and the other actually let's let our other man like marginalized groups also extend their hand to palestinians within the workforce and say oh, actually let me also bring you in to this and let's also open this space for you so that you have a space to talk about the injustice and actually create a narrative that is true and share that with the board the ceos you know the people who are funneling money into places that maybe shouldn't be and actually if you have an entire workforce who now believes the same thing and now stands for the same causes actually the power is then with us And I think people need to realise their power. I think you saw that with the deportation in Glasgow when everyone united and they said, listen, we're not moving. So you're going to get them off the van and we're going to be here for as long as it needs to take. 
you know, that wasn't that many people there. You know, a few Saturdays ago, there was 180,000, nearly 200,000 people. Imagine if every single person took their voice into their workplace, into their university. I think that's what we need to do. We need to just make sure that our activism is not just amongst ourselves, but in the workplace and in, in the institutions. So that we just need to break the fear that I was talking about um, and just make sure that there is going to be change and there's not going to be change without us. And we need to make sure that despite the fair, we are still doing it. I think that's going to, you know, create the change that we need. You touched on kind of the, the voices before where is this going to go? And I think one of the kind of crucial things that colonialism tries to do is erasure of people, of voices, of, of stories, of narratives. And if that's not possible, then certainly kind of shaping the narrative of the colonized in a way that they want. And there is a rich history of colonial powers allying themselves with representatives the, this is in quotes, of the colonised. And that's essentially what the Palestinian Authority is. And that's what every single liberation movement had to struggle against. Again, there's the oppressors, and then there's those who are colluding with the oppressors, including from within the oppressed groups. And that's a Palestinian question which needs to be answered. And that internal politics is, is something which you see Palestinians rising up against within Palestine, uniting their voices. The strike was much more about the internal Palestinian politics than it was about sending a message to the world. You know, that was one of the things it kind of did, but it didn't happen just for that. Well, that wasn't one of the main purposes of the strike. And from the strike, you've had an ongoing movement in the streets, which the Palestinian Authority, the various political parties, which try to represent Palestinians uh, in Israeli politics just can't keep up with. And that is a potential bringer of change in that the Palestinian narrative has been united across all of these different sects of Palestinian politics and Palestinian geographies and, and, and that is potentially building to something bigger. We need it to build something bigger. So that's the first kind of potential pillar of change is, is that kind of internal side and it's very unclear as to how that will look but you know something has to happen there but I guess we can focus on kind of how things can change from external pressure and we need to fight the the things that the colonizer tries to do so we need to combat the erasure by elevating Palestinian voices speaking the Palestinian languages has become crucial but that needs to continue so so using the lexicon around apartheid settler colonialism is a dam that's been broken that like I, I know I keep saying this but but it's so significant that we can't lose that ground. And well, there are two really important things about it. The first is that the the fact that we care about liberation movement because of the people who are oppressed and the people that we're trying to protect or, or liberate or, or whatever you want to call it. And so we need to use their voices to advocate. That is what allyship is. You center the voices of the oppressed. So that, that is what true solidarity looks like. But it's also really important because once you've established that it's a settler colonialist apartheid, the next question has to be, so what? What do we do about that? And well, apartheid has a very clear manual, which we can borrow from, which is to boycott it and to isolate it and to sanction it. So that's something that we can do on an individual level by boycotting Israeli goods and saying we're not going to spend money to profit an oppression. That is not something that we are willing to do. So that's the first thing. But then to the kind of more institutional community and political stuff, you know, there is clearly power in those, those voices. I completely echo what Salam said about that. You know, universities and, and councils and workplaces and faith groups and all of these things which, which rely on us 
you know, they are communities formed of us people who have uh, expressed solidarity with Palestinians. You know, 180,000 is a ridiculous number of people. And those are clearly people who are, you know, they were passionate enough to march in the rain for Palestine. I'm sure they're happy to write a few letters to their CEO or to their course director or to whatever. And we need to break the dam. You know, it started cracking, but we need to break the dam around that progressivism except for Palestine mm-hmm. thing, which, which just the time has come to completely just overcome that barrier of being progressive on everything except for Palestine. And, you know, getting all of these different institutions that said we're anti-racist to prove that they're anti-racist. Yes. And it's not just about kicking, you know, a racist customer out of your store. It's about what you do with your money. Quite frankly, mm-hmm. keep the racist in your store, but divest from organizations and, you know, from weapons manufacturers, because not only do they oppress Palestinians, they oppress everyone. And, you know, all of these things, you know, stop colluding with, with oppressors, whether they are right here at our doorstep, you know, stop ratting out, you know, people who, who are undocumented, you know, stand on the, you know, on the side of the, of the press as an institution. And we need to force the institutions to do that. You know, quite frankly, you know, we've probably got Palestinians at every single university. And we need to go to their board meetings, walk into the room and say, you've got Palestinian students, so you're happy to be investing money and killing them. And it needs to be told in that way, because that is the reality. Just because it hides behind different portfolios and different committees, and it's really complicated, and we've got all of these policies and due diligence, it's meaningless if if all of that is just a bureaucratic facade to escape accountability. So we need to take back mechanisms of accountability. And that means telling our MPs, well, you're not going to get elected if you don't call for sanctions against mm-hmm. Israel. Organizing at that level and telling our university, you know, we're going to shut campus down for a few years until you pull out all, all of your investments and, and actually implementing that and organizing at the campus level, at the workplace level. You've got college students who are doing that. It's it's incredible. There is no excuse when you've got 17, 16, and 18-year-olds doing this, and not adults who are armed with the knowledge about how to actually dismantle systems of oppression, not doing it, uh, particularly those who who kind of study it and preach it. You need to practice it. Mm -hmm. Really powerful calls to action. I mean, I had originally intended for that to kind of be the conclusion of the podcast, but I guess seeing as we are on a digital theme, and like Salam, you mentioned previously this idea of how when you have infographics that can be spread quite quickly, if they contain inaccurate information, you know, it's almost impossible to do damage control. The really interesting parts of the recent spate of violence were the live tweets from official Twitter accounts of the State of Israel and the Israeli Defence Force. And it seemed to be an attempt to justify what they were doing, but also an attempt to win the PR battle. And I think this, you've mentioned throughout this episode life especially this idea of having more hope than before Um, and we've also talked about how there is a global solidarity movement and it just needs to move into that next step of action when it comes to the the PR battle between the state of Israel and then the Palestinian struggle how important is not just representation but visualization of exactly what's happening and before I turn it over I just want to mention also previously we mentioned how we often see the argument being limited it's immediately stopped either with self-censorship or through allegations of anti-semitism and we've seen this conflation between anti-zionism and being anti-semitism so how important is it that we tackle this narrative going forward so that people are aware of what it means to be an anti-zionist and how that's not the same as being an anti-semite or standing for the liberation of palestine i've personally found it very very 
taxing to have to move the narrative away from the truth and argue the point that actually the liberation of Palestine and supporting Palestinian movement and, and amplifying the voices is not anti-Semitic. I think that is a very, a very intelligent way to move the story along from what needs to be told. I find myself so many times saying, oh, actually, this is not anti-Semitic. You know, you'll say something and someone will be like, that's anti-Semitic. And I'm like, it's not, it's not. And I, and I, and it's exhausting having to go through that constantly. So for me personally, I'm not willing to engage with that. I'm not willing to, I know what it is. I'll say it once. I'm not going to say it again. If we're having a conversation and you, you, um, think that what I'm saying is anti-Semitic, I welcome you to explain why you think that. I'll tell you why it's not in fact, and we will move on from that. I'm not going to exhaust myself explaining something that's simply not true. I think it just, it deviates completely away from telling the truth of what's happening. And, and the Zionist movement has been absolutely incredible at, you know, conflating Judaism with the Zionist movement and the state of Israel. And it's just like, actually, not everyone in Israel is a Jew. And 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 a lot of the Jewish people in Israel don't believe um, anything. It, as in Judaism and Zionism are, you know, so far from each other. It's like, you know, Earth and Neptune. It's it, They're nowhere near. And I think if you were a true Jew, you would know that everything that what founds Zionism does not relate at, at all to what your true faith is. So for me personally, I'm not in, engaging in that. I think like I said, I'm happy to have that conversation once with with someone, and I'm not I'm not willing to touch on that again. I don't. I, I think it's it's very emotional to have to to be in a position to tell the truth of your family. Say, you know, my father, and my grandfather were you know torn from their homes with and and left their country with nothing but the clothes on their back, and and you have family that still bear the wounds of bombs and guns and things like that. And for someone to come and say to you, actually, your truth is anti-Semitic, it's just not. It's yeah, it's not something I'm I'm willing to engage with. I think if you have any sort of sense and you are well versed and you you are reading the literature or just engaging very slightly, you would know that the liberation of Palestine is not an anti-Semitic movement. So I'm not here to argue the cause. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> I completely agree. Moving for justice in Palestine is an anti-racist position. You know, you've got Zionism, a, a racist ideology, which says it's okay to have Jewish self-determination even if it displaces Palestinians, kills them, imprisons them, chucks them off the land, for that to then become called the racist position is clearly a bad faith accusation. And it's clearly a way to try to silence Palestinian voices. And conflation between Judaism and Israel is the very thing which people who, who monitor anti-Semitic crime and, and want to do something about it warn against. But then you've got, that's exactly what the Zionist movement does. And so you know, yeah, I completely agree with, with Salam. You find yourself in, in that ridiculous position of you're, you're basically saying, this is what my family experienced. This is what I experience. Just want justice. Sometimes, somehow becomes an anti-Semitic position. And that conflation actually kind of is, is clearly, you know, it's, it's used by, by different actors in the Zionist movement, but it's used by the state of Israel. And it's used in conjunction with conflating Palestinians with Hamas. And all that tries to do is essentially stoke or, or use the fact that there's a rise in Islamophobia in Europe to essentially do a thing of, well, if you hate Muslims, you should also hate Palestinians, kind of thing. And removing or moving away from 
the fact that this is an occupation, the fact that this is this possession, the fact that this is a colonial uh, movement that's displacing Palestinians. So it's, I mean, it's clearly worked because so many people are afraid to speak out anti-Semitic statements and move to silence Palestinian activism through that accusation has worked. So the first thing to do is just to, to reject that narrative because, and you know, fundamentally, this is an anti-racist movement and essentially that conflation is the, is the problem. But there is an increasing transparency through all of these different things. So, you know, the, the social media accounts, whether official or unofficial, that Israel is putting out, I think we're getting exposed quite quickly for the propaganda that they were putting out. Um, the fact, you know, on a couple of occasions, for example, they threw around the usual accusation around human shields. And within minutes, it had been debunked that, well, actually, this was something in Syria. And then there was another one that actually was a video from Israel, where Israel was actually moving trucks of, of rockets through residential areas that they were using as propaganda to try to say that it's um, actually Palestinian rockets. And that those things, those lies and that counter-narrative is getting exposed so quickly, I think, because there is a growing... Uh, awareness of of the use of those different techniques by the state of Israel, and and, and therefore kind of a hyper vigilance almost kind of fr- from everyone who's monitoring the situation, activist or otherwise. The idea of arguments being made in bad faith and the propagation of of fake news, but there is some hope, I guess, in that that it can be quickly countered with accurate information is good news. I mean, this has been a really heavy episode, so I wanted to thank you both for sharing your insights. Salam mentioned the need for justice shouldn't be conflated to anti-Semitism, and I think that's so true. In recent years, we've seen a shift in the definition that somehow ostracizes Palestinians, which are Semites themselves, since you are of that population. There's so much more to say on this topic, but we've probably reached our capacity for this session. In closing, if there was one takeaway that our listeners would benefit from with regards to Palestine in the digital age and and what they can do, what would it be? I would simply say, listen to and elevate Palestinian voices. Yeah, I think to echo on that as well, just for anyone who's tuned in and heard us, just think about the the world that you want to see and the things that you think are right and, and stand for them and don't be afraid to do that because if you don't, no one else will. So, you know, create the world that you you want to see. Perfect. Thank you so much. Life and Salam were brilliant, intelligent and amazing contributors. And we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you've been thinking about a social media related issue and want to be part of our growing community, get in touch. Don't forget to also subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast from so that you never miss a new episode. In the meantime, Sit back, spread the word, and we'll see you next time on The Social Relapse.